Looking for an assist with your credit card, but you can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story. And one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion. Championship team. Yeah, there should be some passion. This doesn't have to be boring. 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 Hey, one thing the game needs is more people like you. 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 Still have grown men run around tight pants. It's Mookie Betts. It's Daniel Bard. It's Steve Aoki. Here's Saltalamakia. This is Brock Holt. Hey, this is John Lester. Baseball. Is baseball. Baseball isn't boring. Welcome to baseball isn't boring. All right, we are officially at number six. Number 10, we had John Gibbons, the greatest. Number nine, we had Kenley Jansen, another great interview. Number eight, we had Big Poppy, another great interview, talking about Mookie's return to Boston, how he loved him as a teammate, just such a great interview. Number seven, for producer Evans' top 10 episodes of 2023, we had Jerry DePoto talking about the trade deadline. You can't go wrong with that. I mean, it's just so cool to see the behind the scenes because obviously we see Jeff Passan break the deals but it's really cool to see, you know, what happens. How does a how does one team know that another team's interested? You know, do they make a list of the teams interested and then go back and forth? He tells you all that, and it's such a great episode. At number six, I couldn't go wrong with this one. This one blew up because Zach Scott became so popular and present on social media that it really worked out because not only did we have the connection through the Red Sox to talk to Zach Scott, but he also obviously was super big in the New York market with the Mets, and he's now also an advisor for the Rangers. So he was able to give insights on each and everything. But the most important thing that really brought people into this episode was his breakdown of the Pete Crow Armstrong for Javier Baez and Trevor Williams trade. 
which is so interesting because out of his error, I think that might be the most controversial trade, obviously, because Javier Baez left after that year in 2021. And P. Crow Armstrong obviously went on to be a very good top prospect with the Cubs, just made his debut last year and very well might be their center fielder of the future. So Zach Scott gives really, really good behind-the-scenes stuff on that. So if you like Jerry Depoto's episode yesterday, you're going to love Zach Scott's episode because he really goes behind the scenes and tells you which trades may have happened, which trades you know he tried to make happen, talking about a trade that obviously did happen. So it's a really interesting episode, and I think you're really going to like it. Here is Zach Scott. Uh, there's nobody I'd rather have on right now than Zach Scott. Four ring sports. Let's go, Zach. It's been, right. it's been, it's been a minute. It's been a minute. How you doing? I'm great. I'm doing really well. So can't complain. All right. So first off, you know, it's it's great to have a venture like four rings, and but it's also it's even better when you can be attached to a world champion. <laughs> so yeah. which you guys are with the Texas Rangers. Uh, before we get going about a ton of stuff, let let me just take me through sort of the evolution of four rings and and also how it, it manifests itself in like in I guess the most recent example in terms of the Rangers. Sure, I mean I I'll have to be a little guarded on what I could talk about as it regards to the Rangers or any client for that matter. But yeah, when I left the Mets, um, you know prematurely from my perspective, not how, how I wanted things to really end there. Um, I had an opportunity to think about what was next for me Did talk to, you know, every year I talked to baseball teams about potentially going back, jumping back in full time. Um, but really for the previous, my last three, four years at the Red Sox, I had been kind of getting an entrepreneurial itch and thinking about starting some sort of business on my own. Um, I didn't know what that would be. So the situation I was in after the Mets kind of forced me to think about that more. And I felt like, okay, what are the kind of, I had to think about what kind of things come up a lot for teams. And, and the more I thought about it, it was just like, you know what, I, at my core, I've always viewed myself as a problem solver and someone that's resourceful. So I decided to start a strategic consulting business for sports teams where I basically want to help general managers and other staff members with whatever they see as their biggest issue, their biggest challenge. You know, what are the things that keep them up at night? And any person I've ever known in a high level of baseball, there's always this kind of level of paranoia that they're missing something. <laughs> uh, so that's what I wanted to help with, right? It is where, where are we weak? Where do we need to get better? How can we kind of improve these certain processes? And it's really about the processes under the hood. In baseball, I can help with, the player pool if they want my thoughts on a trade or on a free agent i can't do that in other sports and i do work with other sports teams outside of baseball uh, which is really actually very fun and interesting for me because it's a whole new world and i always enjoyed when i worked in baseball talking to people from other teams because there was always something i'd learned that would get me thinking about how it could help teams that i worked for um so yeah it's i i end up doing a variety of different things get to meet a lot of interesting good people that work for different teams and really just try to help them um, set themselves up for success right I'm trying to help them build some sort of infrastructure if it's you know they think they need to be uh, you know a lot of it because my background has been in 
analytics and building out analytics teams, it does tend to go there, especially in other sports that aren't as mature as baseball in that space. Um, you know, you talk to a hockey team and they'll say, we got all this player and puck tracking data. It's relatively new to that sport. You know, how can we get the most value out of this? How can we use this in our processes to make better decisions? So I'll work with them to help them set up a process to handle the data, have good people studying it. I'm not going to do the analysis myself. That's not what I'm doing. I'm, I'm more teaching them how to fish type of thing. So yeah, that's kind of the, the basics of the business. Um, and, you know, as far as working for baseball teams with the Rangers, you know, that was probably about a year ago, I started talking to Chris Young. And, um, you know, he's not someone I, I, I really knew. And in fact, that front office wasn't a front office that I had a lot of connections to. I knew him from MLB, but only really when he did his kind of, you know, team visits and spring training type of thing that was just brief. Um, but we talked for a long, a long time on several calls and, and we were really aligned on kind of our values and, and how how he was seeing the organization organization that he wanted to build and run. And so um, it was a good fit in that sense. And then it was just about, you know, helping him with the issues that he felt like he needed. And as someone that's been a, such a successful big leaguer, he's an incredibly humble person. Mm -hmm. And so for him, it was, you know, he had already brought in Dayton Moore to help him um, as an advisor. And from with me, it was more about, hey, I've never been in the seat where I've had to make these decisions as the number one. Um, you know, I'm not going to pretend that I know exactly how to use all this information that we have in that process. So I need some help there. And he's got thoughts and ideas on how to do it, but he recognized that this may be an area that's where he could use some help. So that was essentially what I was brought in to do. It was a pretty, it was probably the biggest engagement I've done so far with a team. So I felt, um, like a part of the team. I made several trips out there, one spring training and then several to, to Arlington, and got to know a lot of the people there. Did a lot of Zooms with people there. It's a great group. Uh, got to be there for the draft prep, for trade deadline prep. Um, it was really, really fun. So especially the trade deadline was really enjoyable to kind of be in it. Be a buyer is always more fun than when you're selling. I mean, the act of selling can be fun because you're getting excited about the future, but the circumstances certainly aren't fun. Um, so, and to see and, and see why having such an aggressive approach, which is, you know, what I'm used to in most of my career coming up under Theo, who I think is a pretty aggressive guy, um, you know, it's about championships. So that was the mindset is how are we going to improve our chances to win a world championship? And, uh, it was fun. It was really fun to be, be in the room for that. So I want to go back to what like you said, well, the impetus for it, right? So when you're sitting there, you're thinking about you're getting that itch and you think there's something there and then you want to start something. What did you feel was sort of the most underserved thing that the organizations would want to use your organization for? And maybe it's something you, what you said, Zach, which is just that that fear of you're missing something that maybe is right in front of you or maybe you don't know about or. It, 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 and I can totally get that, right? I mean, right. You, you nobody thinks they know absolutely everything, and they're also sure. a little bit paranoid about what they're not getting right. from somewhere else. So, was that? Yeah, and it, sorry, yeah, it's a it's a closed industry too, right? So it's you only have thirty teams in your sport, and or whatever it may be in different sports. 
and you're, you don't have access in, inside those walls. And, you know, part of the time you do get access by hiring people away from organizations. You get a little sense of kind of what the differences are. But, yeah, there's always this unknown that especially if, you know, you're either new or you've been doing it a long time, you may think like, are we uh, too insular? Do we not have an outside perspective? So the big picture thing I was trying to offer is an outside perspective. And of course, yeah, that's going to be limited somewhat to my experiences. But one thing that I've always done is maintained a pretty large network. And especially now that I'm not you know, full-time with the team, I'm not connected to a team in a way that a, a standard kind of full-time employee is people are more comfortable talking to me more comfortable opening up and you know not giving away trade secrets but just kind of using me as a sounding board but i also learned something from them right so um and, and i've learned stuff from other sports that are applicable to baseball so it, yeah it's i set out to be honest i i wanted to start out with a kind of a more of a niche and so i figured okay the analytics space is kind of where I've spent a much of my time, even though I've had some oversight of pro scouting, had oversight of player development with the Mets. Um, that's where kind of my, my bread and butter was. So, and I honestly thought this is going to be much more marketable to non-baseball teams because baseball is so mature in that space. I mean, baseball is gone, you know, I, I don't want to be critical, but it's just the number of people that work, on in this area for baseball teams is amazing to me. It's astonishing and 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 probably unnecessarily so. Um, because getting larger can help you in some ways, but also creates a lot of other issues and challenges that you have to deal with. So uh, there's trade-offs there. Um, but you know, you look at baseball where the average team has 23 people focused on, you know, their analysts, their software engineers, their data engineers. Now you have biomechanical engineers. So you have these analysts and engineers and the, the average team has 23, which is amazing. And you have a range from, you know, around 10 to, you know, 40 something. Um, you look at other sports and in, in the, the next highest is an average of five. And so, <laughs> yeah, so it's, and I, and I get it. Baseball is also a much larger scope sport, like lots of minor league teams, I think the most comparable thing is maybe like a, you know, a soccer team, right? With the academies and kind of the different levels of teams that they have. Um, so I get like an NBA team is much smaller roster, much smaller player pool, a two round draft, uh, one development team. Like it's just a very different scope. So I get that it should be smaller to some degree, but it's probably too small. So a lot of the sports, you know, when I, I worked with a hockey team and found that hockey teams tend to be about 15 to 20 years behind where baseball is in this area. So I wanted to help them think through their, you know, the answer isn't not every team is just going to invest the resources and hire 20 people. Um, so to me, it's how can I help them get to where they want to be, which is making better decisions by utilizing information kind of efficiently into the best, you know, help getting the most out of it without just hiring 20 people and then waiting however many years it takes to actually get the value from that. So it's being creative. It's being resourceful. Um, it's helping them in some cases hire people because I've done a lot of that um, or helping them, you know, create a talent pool to, to at least choose from or identify where places they can do it, what, you know, on their budget, whatever that may be, you know, teams vary in that way. If there's new technologies and tools to help them kind of figure out what's right for them rather than just let's, you know, just buy this thing and, you know, without a plan. So it's really trying to help them think through, you know, what they're actually going to try to do as a, as a 
sports team? Like, what are we, what, what are the benefits we're trying to get? And then how can we actually get it rather than everyone's doing this? Let's just do what they're doing. Um, you know, so that was really the start of what I wanted to do. But the more conversations I had, I realized this could be a broader uh, business because there's, it might not be that's where the biggest concern is. It might be, you know, I've talked to one team where it was like, you know, our professional scouting, I feel like can be better. Um, I don't think we're getting the most, the best looks or the most looks, or it's not efficient. And so even just kind of like this operational type of analysis to figure out how can you get the most, you know, the looks at the most important relevant players to your organization, given where you are in your kind of win cycle, where you want to be. So you're prepared for your trade deadline and your off season better. Um, things like that. I've, I've helped people with as well. So it's funny. I remember I had a conversation with you at a picnic table in Fort Myers, and I think it was, you know, maybe it was Dombrowski first or second year and um, not first or second year, but, you know, certainly somewhere in the Dombrowski era and the, and the, the narrative was, Oh, Dave Dombrowski, he didn't have a lot of analysts. And, and I remember you saying like, like, we know we, we actually added some analysts, um, to the equation, whatever year that was. Um, and I remember you also saying, I think you said, Hey, listen, you know, are we at the, where the Rays are? No. Are we where the Yankees are? No. Oh, wait, 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 the Yankees, the team that Brian Cashman just said, they have basically no analysts and you would put it, went on X, Twitter, whatever it is. And, and sort of or retweeted, I think Eric Bolin just saying like, like, this is the chart that four rings showed how many analysts you have. So I guess my question is, and there's a lot of questions I have off of stuff you said, but this is the thing that jumped to mind. Sure. When you heard Cashman talk the other day, what was, because a big part of this, right. Is, is they want the analysts, but they don't want to be perceived as too analytical. And that, right. and, and when, so when Cashman talks the other day, you have a very unique perspective of this. Like, what was your takeaway? Was it like, hey, don't you don't have to be defensive about this? Or was it what he was saying, which is we don't use analysts as much as people thought? Right. Yeah, well, so it's interesting because I live in New York. And so I hear a lot of the narratives surrounding the Yankees, the Mets, their football teams, all you know, all the teams around here. And there are, you know, they've had a it's been a tough year for the New York fans and with sports teams um, so far. Um but so I'm aware of the public narrative around the Yankees this year and the frustration, which I think, you know, probably comes from winning a lot in your past, right? I, I thought saw that evolution in Boston where, you know, I grew up a Red Sox fan. You went from, uh, how are we going to blow this to, you know, why why aren't we winning? If we're not winning a championship, it's a failure. And yeah, what know, happened in 2006? Come on, let's go. Yeah, right, right. Like it's, <laughs> It's that, which is fine as someone that worked for the team, that's fine. But it was amusing because I grew up there and I, I knew what the mentality was. And I, I just blame the Patriots for that, for setting expectations way too high. Um, but, you know, the Yankees have set the bar really high. And Brian Cashman's been a big part of that. And his record as a GM is outstanding. Um, yeah. So to hear that, one, my first thought was, oh, did I get the numbers wrong? <laughs> Let me go back and check my chart or my information. So there's two things that can happen. There are a couple of things that can happen is one, I may define things a little differently. So my point of doing those numbers isn't to say, okay, here's your media guide list that you call your analytics team. And that's the only people I'm counting. 
analytics in baseball has become fully integrated with many organizations. So you may have people that have come from that background in player development, embedded in scout, whatever it may be. I'm trying to capture all the people that you have that that's kind of their skill set and their background. Um, and so there's probably people that, you know, they do not, they have people that they call quantitative analysts there. Um, and then they have a lot of other people that have the word analyst in their title. I do research the people before I include them. So there are some people that have research, have analysts in their title at different sports teams that I actually don't count towards that because I go and look at their background. And it's like, yeah, this is someone that's a smart person who has feel for the game, who probably sees the game well. And so they're analyzing it much like almost like a TV analyst might an be called an analyst, but they're not, you know, a statistical analyst or, you know, doing uh, sophisticated things. Um, like techniques and mathematical techniques. And so I may not count that person, whereas there may be someone that doesn't have analysts in their title that I am counting because uh, I know their background or I've researched their background and found like, this is the path that they've been on. So this is kind of their core foundational skill set. So I'm going to keep counting them. I think the point I do that that is to kind of capture, um, you know, how many people they have, but also be comparative and kind of compare apples to apples. So you know, that's part of it is he probably has a lower number than I do. I didn't look to see, you know, if you only looked at people with the title quantitative analyst, do they have the second smallest team in the AL East? I didn't look at that. I don't actually think, you know, I did look at if they are analysts and not software engineers, not biomechanical engineers, they still were second highest in all of baseball with about 24 people, I think. Um, so I don't know where he was coming from with those numbers that you remember New York also is one of the unique teams that they have people in New York and then they have people in Tampa and they have a substantial number of people in Tampa. So maybe he's only counting the New York people. I don't, I don't really know. It's his operation. He knows way more about it than I do. Um, and so, you know, I just want this, this is how I account for it. And, you know, I know with Eric retweeting that and it of course caused the stir of like, well, he's lying and, I doubt that was his intention. Um, hey, I appreciated the emotion of his rant. Um, I get the frustration I can imagine given how much success never having a losing season. And, uh, you know, I come from an organization, yeah, we won more championships in the same time period, but we also had a lot of last place finishes. We were kind of a, an odd roller coaster. Um, so I get it. I get his frustration. Brian Cashman's been in the game a long time. He can get away with maybe having a rant like that than other people. So uh, I enjoyed it. It was very entertaining. <laughs> well, well, I mean, it was entertaining, but it also it's it's this and this is another big part of this. It's almost like a cliche. It's the I don't want to say defensiveness. I mean, being defensive about it. But yeah. but Zach, I mean, we we've gone through this a million times about. Yeah, this is why you have analysts. This is why you have information. Yeah, but it's such this black and white issue. And then I come back to I remember when Moneyball came out, and you know everything became so black and white. Scouts right. versus stats, you know, and right. and it feels like we haven't gotten past that. And this is sort of like this is the latest example of it, right? Yeah, yeah, and that was the part of it that kind of I was taken aback by. I was you know, do we still need to do that? Do we still need to? be defensive about that. I mean, most people, regardless of what their role is in a baseball operation, get it at this point that there's a lot more people, front offices are bigger than they've ever been. These analytical teams are, are enormous. 
Um, you walk in, you don't know who anyone is, you know, there's a lot of that that goes on. Um, and, but they get why you have analysts. Um, I do think what unfortunately contributes to those kind of narratives or even straw man arguments that this is this, this versus that, that is because some teams and it's not the norm have, have replaced or have gotten rid of, you know, their pro scouting department and, or have gotten really lean in scouting and heavy in analytics. And so, you know, anytime you start reducing the number of jobs in an area, like I get why that narrative might be uh, a perceived threat. I think those teams that do that are missing out because, you know, I, I've been, I get asked this a lot by people where they say, you know, with all the analytical investment that teams are making, it's getting really hard to get a competitive edge because everyone's got models for the draft and, you know, putting dollar values on players. Like how do we actually make deals or, or, or draft, you know, the draft board, it seems like everyone's drafting off the same board these days. And to me, you know, I agree that everyone's getting pretty much the same quantitative information. And yes, there's some different analytical statistical modeling techniques that you can use that might be better than others, but that's not that big of a difference. But, you know, if you're talking about a draft model, for example, you're still getting a, a huge benefit from the scouting information. So like what you input into a model is really important. So being better at scouting than other teams is still valuable. So that, you know, I think teams obviously get that for amateur. I think a professional, it's true, especially of young players and the minors when you're in a position that you're trying to acquire young talent. Um, you know, your models are often only as good as your scouting information as well. So you need, you know, that's data too, right? That's qualitative data. So you need your quantitative and your qualitative to be really good. And you need to know what they're, you're talking about people. We're not talking about stocks. We're talking about human beings. So understanding the person that you're acquiring into your organization or trading away, you know, understanding how they, you know, are as, as people, their makeup, how they learn, if they're young players, how they adapt, all their athleticism, they're kind of projecting physically on them, projecting mentally on them. All those different things are really important and can't be captured uh, quantitatively most of the time. Along those lines, you had a front row seat for the evolution of that, right? I mean, yeah. this is another thing we talk about is fine, you have the information, but you have the human beings. How do you get the information, the, the human beings, and how do the human beings accept the information? And I would imagine, you know, those, not even the early days, I mean, even going through, you know, the teens with, with the Red Sox and it's, Hey, let's sit down, let's explain this. And it's still that way. And this seems to be sort of the great white whale when it comes to running teams, uh, having the right executives, having the right managers, what's your perspective on where that stands now and how that has evolved even in the last couple of years? I think that has evolved quite a bit, although I would say that there's still a lot of opportunity to get better in that area. And, you know, when, when and Bloom came to the Red Sox, you know, I told, I told, he asked me kind of where this, what, what's the current state of things analytically with the organization? And I said, you know, we're, we just started to add some more analysts in the last few years. We're starting to really invest in this area. We, we kind of, you know, in the early days, 20 years ago, we were a little ahead of the curve. Then we just kind of stagnated and, and kind of fell behind a little bit as other teams invested heavily in that space. And we had just started to kind of recommit and reinvest in that area. Um, and I said, but we hadn't yet really bubbled enough of that 
information and value up to the people you know that need it to make our organization better whether that's coaches or decision makers in the draft we were just starting that part of it and so that's an evolution that takes some time right it's you know making sure everyone's on the same page it's you know you hear the word collaborative all the time it really truly is has to be a collaborative process and collaborative processes can be difficult to kind of iron out the kinks and so you know i told them i feel like we have some pretty good under the hood we have some good analytical tools that you know we probably only had for some of them for a couple of years now because we just started to add more analysts so they'll get better over time as well as we continue to iterate and make them better with each new version, but they're better than what we had before we did this. Um, but where we're really behind is in implementing these things and integrating them into actually making players better, you know, having those conversations. We had some smart people uh, in uniform um, in PD or in the major league uh, clubhouse that could do that, but it was still relatively early for them too. It was still kind of a new thing. The knowledge was evolving as well, which is always a risk that your messaging becomes inconsistent as you continue to learn new things. And maybe one thing you thought you learned as you continue to study it maybe wasn't as true as you thought. And so you, you don't have to backtrack, but you just have to adjust your messaging. The I I would say, I always say the, the Tampa Bay Rays are kind of the platinum standard in all of sports analytically not because i think they have the best analysts and tools although i'm sure they have great people and great tools but because they've had a consistency of leadership going back to when andrew friedman got there 2006 um, or took over i should say as as the head of the baseball ops even when he left they promoted internally so their philosophies and their processes have been very consistent for a long time and so that's where their biggest advantage is. They're a well-oiled machine when it comes to finding insights within data and information and then actually acting on them in a positive way. They do that really well. It's, an, it's a tribute to the people that they have there, but also the fact that they've kind of worked out those kinks. They've evolved and they're ahead of the curve in that area and they can remain that way as new things come along too. When you had mentioned um, also on Twitter slash X, the... Uh, and this goes with your conversations when, when Haim took over, uh, the managerial search, uh, wow. when, when you were hiring Alex back, um, and, uh, and you had some interesting names and names that had, have come up recently, uh, James Rousen and, um, uh, Carlos Mendoza. Is that, yeah. yeah. So there was, yeah, I, mean, I mentioned Sam Fold as well. I think Sam those Fold. Three, yep. three Sam names, Fold. Yeah. That's right. Um, so when you sat in on those, what, wh how was that different for you? Like, cause this is another part of like, whereas did, did that become a priority? I mean, there's a lot of things when you have to prioritize when you're hiring a manager, but more so than ever did that, when you had those interviews and you had those conversations, did getting the vibe of whether they were going to be able to handle what you're talking about, was that more of a priority than ever before? I wouldn't say it was more of a priority. I think. You know, anytime, you know, even when we hired Alex Cora the first time, um, you know, I was involved in that process. And I'd say the way it changed from that to, you know, I'll leave aside kind of the, the Ron Renneke process because that was just so unique in the timing when it was. Um, so from Alex to then when we brought Alex back, but had interviewed 10 people before we made that decision, um, it wasn't that it was any more important or less important in the past. 
um, and there's been many man managerial processes in the past as well. It was just different in how we assessed it. Like we could be more, I, I felt like we were more specific. It was the first time that I felt really good about the process in terms of what questions we were asking, how much time we dedicated to that. So I'd say, you know, I remember interviewing Alex and it was in New York and cause he was still in the postseason with the Astros. And, you know, we met in a hotel room on an, I think he had an off day and, um, you know, I had the whole script of a bunch of questions related to that. He did a great job of answering a lot of them before I even asked them. So that was helpful. Uh, but it was just much more conversational and less kind of, um, I don't want to say rigid kind of implies a negative um, thing, which is not what I mean, but it was just less structured and more, more conversational, even though we did have kind of a script we were working off of. I think there was more kind of picking and choosing. Whereas with the second time around with this group of 10 people, it was much more robust in terms of the process itself, in terms of the time that we asked of the candidates, especially those that got multiple interviews, which included those three guys. Um, there was just a lot more time dedicated to, you know, meeting with, sitting down with an analyst and kind of going through some very specific scenarios and asking them very detailed questions about, you know, hey, we have this kind of model. Here's what's contained in the model for help with defensive positioning. What are the things that you think, you know, you, you should be, you should adapt off of this model in real time. What are some reasons you would adapt off of that? Um, and so guys give different answers. It's interesting, though, to hear the way they, they talk about it. And they all did a good job, even though they all answered it separate, slightly differently. But um, those were they were just much more specific and detailed questions than what I recall from the past. That's really interesting to, to, to juxtapose the two Alex Core interviews. <laughs> well, we didn't interview Alex as part of that. That was kind of, okay. you know, the second time around, it was Haim basically said, let's set Alex aside for now, because that's there's a lot of complicating factors there. And I don't, you know, we all, you know, the people that were there who had relationships with Alex, you know, at the beginning of the process, he said, do you all want to bring Alex back? And we all said, yes. <laughs> uh, and Haim didn't have the relationship. So understandably so, he's like, I want to go through this other process, which, you know, is not a waste of time, even if we end up with Alex again, because at least you get to know some people and, and have a good process and learn a lot he'll learn a lot about that as well what, what jumped out with mendoza obviously he... he was really polished i mean so i don't of the 10 i don't know if we talked of the 10 people maybe all of them had no experience as a major league manager mm -hmm. um I, you know that may not be exactly true but when i remember it, i think it was um a lot of them were bench coaches um with him so given that that pool was primarily people that never managed in the big leagues, there is no doubt in my mind that he was the most ready to do it and polished and that he would be able to um, step in and immediately kind of command a clubhouse for lack of a better word. Um, and he's going to be organized. He just, he clearly been thinking about this for a while. He had managed in the minors. Um, I just, it just seemed like, wow, this guy's really polished his ability to communicate um, the relationships that he had with players and coaches were really strong. There was just a lot. He checked a lot of boxes. Um, it was really impressive. I didn't know anything really about him other than, you know, the position he was in and the organization and it's an organization I have a ton of respect for. So um, I knew he would have had exposure 
uh, to analytical information, given their enormous analytics team. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so so that was that was a really I really enjoyed that process. And he did, you know, we did a Zoom with him and then we brought him in person and he was great in, in both of those. The um, I want to go back to you know, this. This is talking about the merging of the front office and the manager seat. Um, or really the front office. And you at the beginning of this, we talked about the the interesting dynamic of CY Chris Young in Texas. Yeah. Um and and how he approached this. And I know that I've talked to people on the record, off the record, and one of the things they said they liked about him, especially heading into the deadline, was sort of that player perspective. Like he was open-minded, but he had the player perspective of, hey, this guy's uh, his guy's numbers might be a little skewed or or he might be dealing with this injury, but I know what that feels like or whatever it is. Um, so I, I do want to talk about, I'm going to get to your, the the deadline deal you did with Baez in a second, but I, I want to talk to you about your perspective of deadlines and and this latest deadline, which like you said, you were somewhat involved in. Like how did, how did you view it? Did you, is this one of these cases where, because you've been around a lot of different people. So I, I don't know if you learn anything, but what was just sort of your takeaway from being around this deadline? Yeah, I really hope I learned something from it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so I think if you're if you have a chance, a real chance, I think the Red Sox have been in a precarious position for the last couple trade deadlines. So I, I think that's a tough spot to be in. Probably the toughest spot to be in a deadline when you're like, are we... Should we buy? Should we sell? But if it's you know you have a chance to win your division and, and win a championship, I think you owe it to your fans, your organization, your players, really everyone to give that your best shot without destroying your chances of having um, a good team going forward as well. But you only get so many of these opportunities, so you know we we know objectively that the odds of winning a championship are inherently low because it's a tournament and there's a lot and there's even more teams in it. And so it's, it's really hard. Um, and baseball is a game that, you know, randomness can change things pretty quickly for you. So we know that to be true, but I still think it's important that you put your best foot forward. And obviously there's a limit to, to what you're willing to do. Uh, like I said, you don't want to destroy your, your, you know, talent pipeline for the future. But I also think sometimes what happens is people, they, they almost get caught up in looking at their farm system in that moment without thinking that, you know, you're going to have a draft every year. You're going to have, you're going to always be bringing talent into the organization, young talent, which might be players you trade later. It might be players that become future um, pillars of your major league team. I've always viewed it fairly aggressively um, of you, you keep a fairly narrow scope of the players that you think are going to be those pillars of your future major league team. You, you, everyone talks about sustainability and building a sustainable winner. That should be the goal, right? Like we want to, we don't want to just win one year. We want to win every year. So I get that. But I think what can happen sometimes is people cast too wide a net and saying like, well, we need to keep all these young players because they're our future and they're cost controlled. So that'll make it easier for us to justify doing bigger deals of free agency and balancing out kind of the, the portfolio approach, which makes baseball really exciting to talk about it that way. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think 
what I learned what you know from from Theo from Dave Dombrowski in particular was kind of you know you identify your it may only be three guys that you think these are going to be you know future Boston Red Sox future uh, Texas Rangers they're going to be key parts of our long-term success and you know you don't make them untouchable but realistically speaking they are because your price is going to be so high for them that no one will probably do a deal um, and then kind of everyone else is on the table um, and you know what you're gonna you're gonna lose sometimes when you do that you're gonna trade away a guy that all of a sudden takes a big big step forward and yeah you may look bad that you traded that guy in a rental deal but more often than not, the opposite happens, right? Where a guy, you know, it, who is not one of your top guys um, becomes a, a solid big leaguer, but no one that you couldn't replace. And again, you have opportunities to replace those guys. It's not your farm system at this moment, right before this trade deadline is our farm system going forward. And if you if you don't think of it that way, I think you get, um, you, you end up kind of holding the bag a little bit. Um, and I also think teams look, that they can get scared to make a move because nothing really, one player doesn't move the needle in the sport like it does in basketball, right? Like the sport's designed to limit the impact of an individual. You can only start 20% of the games as a pitcher. You can only get 11% of the plate appearances as a hitter. Like there's only so much impact that one player can have. So it's really slippery and easy to kind of go down this path where you convince yourself like no move's really going to help us that much. So I'm going to hold Pat. But when I think back to your, original point about talking about CY being a player like that was one of the questions that I always ask players is how much of an impact does it have when you don't do anything in a clubhouse and you know I think his you know I'm not going to get into his answer because I you know keep that to myself but when I've asked people over the years it tends to be the same kind of answer where it's like well it help it affects people differently but yeah it's a morale thing it's you know we're we're human beings and we're really competitive and if we feel like um the front office doesn't believe in us by a kind of standing path then you know it could affect some people to think it could affect people in a positive way that uh, we're going to prove to them that we're, we're better than they think um, but it could also make them feel like well they don't seem to care why should i subconsciously not consciously they're all really competitive people though so anyway that's my long-winded answer no no it's it's i think you hit the nail on the head and, and you know from the outside i would agree with everything you said so you had mentioned the on uh, twitter the bias thing um mm -hmm. the the story behind the story the floor is yours i mean go ahead <laughs> yeah well i i think with that i totally understand when people look back so the trade was about having bias we acquired um Trevor Williams, and they also sent us cash, which was important at the time to keep us under the luxury tax, which was a mandate. Um, and we gave up Pete Crow Armstrong, um, who at the time, so if you look at it at the time, he was, I want to say publicly ranked as probably our fifth best prospect by the publications that do that. I'd say that was pretty consistent with how we viewed him internally. We liked the player. We loved the person, the work ethic. We loved the defense. I think there were, we had questions about how the, the bat was going to evolve. Um, and, you know, we had a farm system that was pretty top heavy, didn't have a lot of interest in kind of the middle tier, which is usually where you want to trade from to make deals. So, you know, we couldn't really get any traction there. And we had a four game lead on the division at that point, which is hard, hard to remember because things kind of fell apart fairly quickly for the team. 
uh, the last couple months. But yeah, we still had a four-game lead in the division. It was a pretty mediocre division at the time, which is also hard to remember because the Braves have been so good since then. Then and they ended up playing really well uh, down the stretch. But I felt like a four-game lead. We should we have to be buyers. Um, and so I was having a lot of conversations about different players, uh, and especially with the Cubs, having a lot of dialogue about because they were selling a lot of players. So we talked a lot. Um, at one point, there was like this probably was like a seven-player deal we were talking about that would have filled several needs of the team. One interesting dynamic that happened on deadline day was I got a bad report on the health of Jake DeGrom. Um, so that didn't stop us. That wasn't, I didn't look at it as well. We got to give up on the season. And as you saw, you know, the Rangers lost Jake DeGrom and ended up winning a World Series. So you, you don't give up on the season when something like that happens. You still have a four-game lead. It wasn't clear that he was going to miss the rest of the season, but I knew there was some chance of that. Um, so it wasn't great. So I kind of pivoted a little bit from away from the kind of more of the all-in type deals and thought this is a player that fits us really well and Doran had some health stuff we'd had some um, challenges on the infield this he could play anywhere um you know the makeup was positive especially if he's in a place where you're trying to compete the people thought he'd thrive in the spotlight of new york um which he, he ended up doing so we did the deal knowing you know anytime you're doing a rental deal you kind of know it's a negative long-term, right? Like you're giving up a prospect, even if at the time, Pete Armstrong wasn't, he wasn't a top 100 prospect. He was a good prospect and we liked him. But, you know, at the time it was like, I think some publications viewed it as fair, um, given that what we were getting in return, as fair as it can be, I would have viewed it as slightly negative long-term. Mm-hmm. Um, to Pete Armstrong's credit and to the, you know, somewhat to the Cubs player development credit, he has, I would estimate, tripled his value since then and is now in some places listed as the 12th best prospect in baseball. That's prospect value. There's two different things, right? Like you've got to, what you contribute at the big league level and then what your kind of prospect value is, which all prospect value helps with until it's realized value is trade value. Um, so if you look back at that trade in hindsight, yeah, it was a bad value trade. But if you look at it as, you know, how did it affect the major league teams of both clubs? Well, that story hasn't been told yet for the Cubs. He still has to go and perform and he will get an opportunity because he's earned that. On the Mets side, you know, Baez performed every bit as well as we could have ever hoped offensively, defensively, base running. He brings so much to the table. He was outstanding, performed, I think, very similarly to Cespedes did in their run to the World Series in 2015. Uh, Williams was really good for us. He was especially good for the Mets when I wasn't there the next year, which he had a year of control. And he's put up, he put up, you know, for two years, a three-something ERA uh, was really a, a key part of their depth situation there. So they got a lot out of those players that were there. And the story has yet to be told about what Pete's going to bring to the big league level. But yeah, when you look at it purely as a value, I know it looks like a really big negative trade. Um, I don't run away from that. Um, But I also, you know, I've had people tell me, veteran executives say, you know, you need to focus on what you're getting more than what you're giving. I don't quite believe that. I'm not all in on that. I think you need to think about both. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's interesting to look, the Mets pivoted this year. They traded for a couple outfielders. One of them is a center fielder. So to my point earlier about you still add young talent down the road, you know, maybe Gilbert is 
ends up being a better big leaguer that, you know, these things or Acuna who we traded with Texas may move to the outfield. I don't know what they end up having doing with these players, but they acquired some really good prospects and they both have prospect value if they want to make trades. And they may also be key parts of their next, uh, you know, great team. I think it's a great, you know, and I heard, I've heard that too before focus on, you know, what you're getting. Yeah. Uh, we had a guy, a friend of mine, JP Ricciardi, you know, he said, that's what he would tell Billy Bean. He's like, focus on what you're getting. And, um, and I think to your point, if, as everything in baseball, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle when it comes right. to yeah. those sort of sayings. Um, you also said you, you also a big propo- or, uh, advocate, proponent, um, supporter, David Stearns and, and his hiring. Just in, in a nutshell, like what, what do you like about it? So I didn't know David until recently. Um, you know, I said hello to him at industry meetings, but never had a real opportunity. Always heard great things about him as a leader, as someone to work for, uh, you know, the culture he creates. Obviously, he's a very intelligent guy. I've known that about him since going back to his um, commissioner's office days. Um, but I didn't really know him. We did talk before he ended up with the Mets. He's doing his due diligence. He's making, I'm sure he made a lot of calls and talked to a lot of people, but he did reach out to me, you know, to, to kind of learn about my perspective on my experience there. Um, and so we talked for quite a while. Uh, I got to know him better. Uh, it was, I really enjoyed the conversation. He, he's just, there's just a lot of things. Like, again, as I mentioned with CY, like, I have a lot of alignment with him, with David as well, in terms of, the kind of organization he wants to build, the kind of culture he wants to have, um, how he wants people to work, those types of things. Um, so, you know, I agree with that approach that he wants to take. So therefore I think he's really good <laughs> because obviously I believe in that for a reason. So, and I like the person, uh, the things that he talked about that are important to him as a leader, as a boss, um, are, are kind of shared values as well. So, you know, there's no doubt he's a smart guy. Um, so obviously the knowledge is important, you know, at that level, these guys all have knowledge, right? It's just kind of, how do they actually execute? Um, and I think, you know, the challenge for any time you go from a smaller market to a big market, the challenge is going to be, you know, how do you adapt to that? I remember hearing Andrew Friedman on a podcast say that he thinks it's much harder to go from small to big than big to small. And I think that makes sense. I mean, I've, my only small market experience is been consulting with the pirates. Um, and so I got to some insight on, on, on that, but I think it makes sense because when you go to a big market, you're not narrowing your focus, right? When you go, I remember when Jed Hoyer went to the Padres from the Red Sox and he said, in some ways it's easier because I can eliminate a whole pool of players that we cannot, you know, this is back when the Padres didn't spend like they spend now. Um, we can eliminate a whole group of players because we can't afford them so we can really drill down and narrow our focus not have to have as many balls up in the air as much uncertainty as, as a big market team may have and that was kind of what andrew said too it's like i now i'm in on every market i, I have to be on we're the dodgers that we can do it so we have to do it and so it's just widens your scope and so i think you know that's going to be the challenge for anyone and it's david's case going from milwaukee to new york and obviously with the resources that they have with the Mets, um, yeah, there's there's no one that you can't acquire. Uh, it doesn't mean there's no limits, but you need to make it. I think it just makes a lot more, there's a lot more decisions that are on your plate. And, you know, I'm confident that that's not going to be a, a difficult transition for him. And you got me fired up. I love it. 
I do. It's like, this, this is great. It's good stuff. I really appreciate it, man. I really appreciate it. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's great to see you. It's great to see, you know, the stuff that you're doing at Four Ring Sports Solutions. And, and, um, and it's just good to talk about this stuff because I think that you offered insight, which I think is so unique and, and, and not only unique because of where you are now and where you've been, but to something you said early on, which is all these different people that you've talked to and dealt with. And even when you were with the Red Sox, I mean, we, we know that there was different iterations of, right. uh, and then, and, and then, you know, the Mets and then, you know, four rings and in the organizations you're dealing with now, even outside baseball, again, like this is, if it baffles me how other media entities let's just say doesn't let don't listen to the the things that they cover like when you're talking i'm thinking oh man like all this stuff is good stuff it's stuff that should be our guide so i don't know you know yeah yeah. no I, i mean as you can tell i'm passionate about talking about stuff it's fun it's interesting i actually went through recently and counted how many former or current general managers or number ones they're either presidents cbo's general managers whatever the title is but the number ones of a that were at one point of a baseball version i worked with 16 of them and that's pretty amazing and i think you know going all the way back to bill LaJoy, who was the gm of the tigers in the 80s um and I've learned something from all of them. And so, you know, what's great about this opportunity now is I get to expand that into other sports and have really interesting, fun conversations with people that have had similar experiences. And we have some shared, we, we kind of all know the life of working in sports operations. It's the same in every sport. Um, you know, the, the calendar is just it's different timing, different details, but it's the grind of it all. And it's been good to have more balance in my life to kind of get out of the day-to-day grind. But I also enjoy helping people kind of navigate through that. But you know what? It all comes back to Bill of Joy. Because every <laughs> time Bill of Joy's name is brought up, I remember Theo um, in the uh, the cult classic book, Chasing Steinbrenner, saying when he's talking about hiring Bill of Joy, and he said, he has a strong desire to kick ass. And I'm like, that is, there's the common theme, right? Yeah. yeah. And and that's, I love Bill of Joy. Um, he was great. I learned so much from him because I knew nothing about scouting when I started. And um, not to say I'm an expert on scouting now, but just the way he went about it. And then to see kind of in hindsight, like how right he was about a lot of things, even though, you know, it, just his experience. But he also adapted. I mean, this is a guy that was up there in years and we're, you know, asking scouts to do more with computers than they ever had in their jobs before and he just adapted and you know kind of went with it and realized this is you know where the game's going but he wanted to win and he was competitive and i i'm very grateful that i was around a lot of people that just had that desire to as you said kick ass and um you know especially a lot of people from boston being there when i first started and having you know that Thing that was relatable to all Boston fans of like we're ending this, we're winning this damn thing, and we're not going to rest until we we do. And then even then, we're not going to enjoy it. We're going to keep going and get to the next one. And and that was just what was really fun about growing up uh, in the Red Sox organization. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. Really, really good yeah. to see you, Zach. Yeah, it was good to see you, Rob. 
It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.